This podcast was brought to you by Salon London as part of our series for Latitude 2013. Neuroscientist Elaine Fox explains the reasons behind our levels of optimism and pessimism and shows how we can alter them, the subject of her book, Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. Um, now, at a wonderful festival like Latitude, and especially yesterday we had such fantastic weather, it might be hard to imagine how some people are extremely pessimistic. But I'm sure we all know people who always tend to look on the dark side of life. They'll always look for what might go wrong rather than what might go right. And whereas other people seem to be incurable optimists, you know, no matter what life throws at them, they are able to bounce back and continue. So where do these differences come from in what um, we can call our emotional mind or our affective mind? Why do we differ so much from each other? And this has really been at the heart of my research for, for many years now. You know, are there real differences in the brain in terms of, of these differences between optimism and pessimism? And most importantly, can we change how we seem to be naturally? Um, now, one of the interesting things is that the founder of experimental psychology way back in the States, William James, um, said that the problem, if you think of the problem for a human infant, if you think of an infant being born into the world, there's a huge amount of sights and sounds and noises and how on earth does the infant or the infant's brain know what's important and what they should pay attention to and what can be safely ignored. It's a blooming, buzzing confusion, as James um, argued. Now, the interesting thing is what we know is that in nature, we don't come into the world as a blank slate. Not surprisingly, nature helps us out. So our brain, we, we're born with a brain that automatically will tune in to two major types of things. Things that might harm, harm us, things that are good for us. So if you like, danger cues and reward cues are the two things that all of us will very naturally tune into. We don't need to, to learn that. So we have these two very ancient systems in our brain, a fear system that's set up to detect danger points, and a pleasure system that's set up to pull us towards the things that are good for us, like food and warmth and, and all the rest of it. So we have these two you know, very basic kind of tendencies. And really, in, in rainy brain, sunny brain, what I've tried to argue is that these two very ancient systems in our brain are actually at the root of what I call our rainy brain system, which is the kind of network and circuits underlying pessimism, and the sunny brain system, which are the network of brain circuits underlying optimism. So if we have a quick look, I won't hit you with too much neuroanatomy this time in the morning, but if we have a quick look at what I call the rainy brain um, system. Basically, the main center here is, is a little part of the brain called the amygdala. That's about the size of, of our thumbnail, and we actually have two. We always call it the amygdala for some reason, but there's actually one on the right and one on the left. And if you went in about, kind of, say, two inches from just above your ears, you'd have these two little structures. The amygdala is, is basically like the um, alarm system in the brain. So it basically sends off an alarm when there's any danger. So we're very naturally tuned into being fearful of, you know, things like snakes and spiders and ancient threats, the kind of things that scared our ancestors and posed a real threat to our ancestors still affect the amygdala nowadays. But of course, also over time, we learn how to, um, we, we learn to um, respond to different types of dangers and the same ancient fear system um, is, is involved. But the interesting thing is, of course, you often read that, oh, you know, the amygdala hasn't changed for millions of years of evolution. It's not quite true because what has changed is we have all of these circuits in the brain I'm not sure how well you can see it, but there's lots of nerves that go from the amygdala up to the prefrontal cortex, which is right at the front of our head. In evolutionary terms, this is much more recent. And basically, this works like a kind of um, what we call a down regulator, or it's a bit like, I always say, like an accelerator and a brake. If you imagine the amygdala is the accelerator, it gets the 
whole system going. And then the prefrontal cortex is basically the break. It says, well, actually, maybe we don't need to run if we see a spider outside. It's probably not going to really do us too much damage. Now, I'm not sure whether you can see here, but there's actually more nerves going from the amygdala to the frontal cortex than vice versa, which explains why if you're, say, spider-phobic, which a lot of people are, people can become absolutely frozen in terror if they see a spider in the bath. Now, in England, we know that spiders aren't poisonous, they're not actually going to harm us. So why do we freeze in terror like that? Well, simply because our brain is set up to do exactly that. The amygdala has more control over our rational mind than vice versa. So it's very, very hard to control. Not impossible, but difficult to control. So basically, this is what I call the rainy brain circuits. So all these circuits that build up in our brain that tune us into threat on the one hand. And of course, the other circuit is the um, sunny brain circuit. So again, it's set up at a newer anatomical level in a very similar way. This time, um, the little structure is called the nucleus accumbens. There are always these very nice Latin words. It's very, it's very close to the amygdala. It's just, it's above the amygdala. But basically, it's filled with dopamine, which is a kind of like pleasure chemical, if you like. So anything that's good for us will really spark up this system. As you can see, um, it's, it doesn't have the same strength over the prefrontal cortex as the amygdala does, as the fear system does, but it works in the same way, accelerator and brake. But not surprisingly, I suppose, um, the fear system will always trump the pleasure system. If something is going to eat us, that's always going to attract our attention more than something we might eat. So as I said you know, here, that is the difference between eating lunch or being lunch. <laughs> so it's always more important to, to pick out dangers. Okay, so now how do we measure this in the lab? I mean, obviously, when we do studies in experimental psychology, we test people under laboratory conditions. We generally don't go out into the um, forest with snakes and spiders and all these kind of horrible things. So we use a task that's called the attentional probe task. And it's very simply, we flash up images on a computer screen, and we just ask people to press buttons if a little target appears. So if you just watch carefully here, you can see here there's two buttons left and the right. And so a pair of images will flash up fairly briefly, and then they disappear, and then a target appears, and the person presses a button. Now, when we do these experiments, it goes much, much more quickly than that, and, and everything is much smaller than that. But on the critical trials, we have, you know, you might have seen there was a spider there, and I think it was a chair, so, you know, a kind of threatening thing and a non-threatening thing. What we find is that people differ slightly in the speed of reaction to detect that little target. So if you just look at the red line here, this is the um, an example of students who scored high on a trait anxiety scale, so people who said they were pretty anxious. They were actually a little bit faster in finding those targets when they appeared behind the location of the threatening items compared to when the targets appeared behind a neutral location. And low-trade anxious people didn't show that. Now, these aren't clinical groups. These weren't clinically anxious people. Just normal, you know, the normal variation on anxiety. Now, you may notice there, over here, these are actually just differences. So we're only looking at 40 or 50 millisecond differences. But it's a very, very consistent difference. We found this in you know, hundreds of studies around the world. And what that does is it sets up a tiny bias, if you like, um, that differs among each of us towards either threat or towards, if you like, more positive things. So the idea is that these, what we call, psychologists call them cognitive biases. The idea is that these biases tune us in and really start setting up these rainy brain or sunny brain circuits. Um, I often use the example is if you imagine water running down onto sand in, in a beach. You imagine the water trickles down um, in the beginning, it won't make, make much indentation, but over time, it'll carve out a pathway through the sand. The more the water goes in that direction, the deeper and more entrenched that pathway will become. 
And of course, it's kind of a little bit like this in the brain. If you think of streams of chemicals and circuits being set up, if you're always looking on the negative side of things, those particular brainy brain circuits will get much more entrenched and much deeper. And whereas if you're always looking at the positive side, your sunny brain circuits will get stronger. But the good news is, of course, that you know I use the analogy of sand um, quite deliberately. It's not set in stone. It's not set in rock. So if you do start to try and shift, you can actually, and the evidence is quite strong, that you can start to shift those ways of thinking and, and those kind of mindsets. So um, I think that's kind of you know just important to remember. Now, why does this matter? You know, psychologists study these kind of tiny differences in the brain, 40, 50 millisecond differences. As I said, I think they are different because they do shift our brain in these different directions. And we know that these biases underlie our thoughts. And we know that in turn, our thoughts, of course, have a huge impact on how well we are or how sick we can get. I'll just give you one example, which I found when I was writing the book, um, which is a very nice example from the history of medicine. And it was the example of a, a guy called Vance Venders, who lived in Alabama in the 1930s. And at the time, Fudo, Voodoo was, um, was very big in, in the black community, and this guy, Fans Fenders, was a black man. He was admitted to hospital, and he'd been in there for a week or two, and was clearly dying. The doctors were very concerned about him. He clearly was failing. Um, they had no idea what was wrong with him. They did all the medical checks, absolutely couldn't find anything wrong with him. So the doctor thought long and hard, and finally, Vance's wife admitted to the doctor what had actually happened. He said two weeks ago, Vance had gone up to the graveyard late at night, and she doesn't know what it was about, but a fight had broken out between Vance and the local witch doctor, during which the witch doctor had thrown some vile-smelling liquid over Vance and told him, you're voodooed now, you're going to die. The doctors won't be able to save you. She said Vance had come running home in a very distressed state and had been in decline ever since. So the doctor thought long and hard of what can he do about this? So what he said was, he said, I need all of the family to come in the next day around Vance's bed. So sure enough, about 15 people came in. They're all around Vance's bed. And he said, Vance, I've worked out what the problem is. I know what's wrong with you, and I know how we're going to cure you. What he said was, he said, your wife told me about the witch doctor. He said, I spoke to the witch doctor last night, and I forced him to tell me what had actually happened. And what he'd done is, when he threw that liquid over you, that was actually filled with lizard eggs. And some of those lizard eggs have got into your stomach, and they've grown into lizards who are now eating the lining of your stomach, and that's why you're dying. You can imagine the stunned silence around the bedside. So in the middle of this, in the most authoritative voice he could command, he ordered the nurse to come in with a very impressive syringe filled with a big injection, and he injected it into Vance's um, arm and said, "We're going to have to get the, we're going to have to get rid of this lizard." Now, as soon as he injected the liquid in, Vance started vomiting profusely, and it was actually an emetic that he had actually um, injected into Vance's arm. So in the middle of all this confusion, the doctor leant down to a sports bag and pulled out a large green lizard that he'd hidden in the sports. <laughs> And he shook the lizard over Fan said, look, Fance, look what's come out of you. No wonder you are sick. And he took the lizard out, and apparently Fance fell asleep for about in shock for about a day, woke up and went on to live a perfectly normal age and died at the age of 90. So what that demonstrates is that our beliefs, our purely psychological beliefs, caused him to be extremely ill in the first place. But of course, those same beliefs also... Um, helped make him better again. So the placebo effect is this thing. So his belief that he'd been voodooed set him into decline, and he almost certainly would have died. But his belief that now the cure had been found also led to him being cured. So these very kind of low-level biases um, do lead in to um, 
to genuine beliefs that can really make a difference to us. Okay, so I think our outlook on life is important. Whether we're pretty optimistic or whether we're pretty pessimistic um, does really make a, a, a difference to us, and there's a lot of evidence for this. So let's just test um, our latitude audience here, our London salon audience, and let's see how many of us are optimists and how many are pessimists. So I have a little questionnaire. It's, there's lots of um, very well-validated questionnaires. So this is just a couple of questions from some of these questionnaires just to give you a kind of a flavor and have a flavor of how optimistic or how pessimistic we are. So what I want you to do is you don't really need to write anything down. If you just keep the numbers in your head, the six questions, and you need to give yourself a number number between one and five for each question and just add them all up together and we'll see what the total is in the end. So hopefully we'll all be able to do that. So for each question you can see if you disagree a lot with it you give yourself a one, if you disagree you give yourself a two, three if you're kind of in the middle somewhere, if you really agree four, if you really strongly agree you give yourself a five. Okay. So the first question is in uncertain times I usually expect the best. Okay, so if you really strongly agree with that, you give yourself a five. If you really disagree, you give yourself a one or somewhere in the middle. Okay, so you've got that. So if you always keep that number in your head, and you'll just need to add the numbers together. So in uncertain times, I would usually expect the best. I enjoy my friends a lot. Again, give yourself a number there between one and five and just add it to your previous number. All right? Number three, now this is, this is often a good one, this often separates people. I would take off on a trip with no pre-planned routes or timetables. Okay, so in other words, you've got your two weeks holiday coming up, you just, you know, go to the local train station and just get on the very first train that comes and just go with no plan, just see where life takes you. If you really would love that and think that'd be great, give yourself a five or somewhere down. Okay, so just add that on to the previous uh, two. I don't get upset too easily. Okay, so again, just give yourself another number there. I get restless when I spend too much time at home. Okay, so again, hopefully you've got a, a single number in your head now. Last question. I usually count on good things happening to me. Okay? Okay, so do we all have, you should all have a total then, somewhere between 6 and 30, okay? So, um, so first of all, um, does anybody have a number, say, above 25? Yeah, okay, that's, well, that's extremely optimistic, yeah? So we've got, a, we've got about four or five extreme optimists here. Um, what about anyone really low? Anybody say, um, less than about 8? 7 or 8? No? Okay, well that's probably quite good news because that would be extremely optimistic. So what about, um, say, 15 and above? Okay, almost everyone, okay. Well that's so 15 and above is kind of mildly optimistic. And um, so actually this is a pretty optimistic bunch of people, which may be not surprisingly on a nice sunny day at, at Latitude Festival. But that's just a little bit of fun, but we know that people do differ in terms of their outlook. And as I said, these are reflected in real brain differences. One of the things that the research is really showing is that um, when we look at what optimism is, a lot of us think of optimism as just positive thinking or you know, pessimism as negative thinking. Actually, it's a lot deeper than that. It runs a lot deeper. And one of the things I really wanted to do in writing the, the book Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain was to really bring this across. It's not just differences in how we think. It's actually much more importantly differences and how we act, really. Your optimists tend to act in very different ways to pessimists. One of the key differences is a simple difference in persistence. Optimists will 
will give things a go a little bit longer. They won't give up as easily as pessimists. We show this very simply in um, lab experiments where we give people an optimism questionnaire. So we divide people into those who, you know, um, similar to the one we just gave you, who are pretty optimistic and those who are pretty pessimistic. And then we give them a couple of anagrams, just jumbled up letters, and they have to come up with the words as quickly as they can. Okay? So what you find is that um, we put in, at about number three, we put in an impossible anagram. So six jumbled letters, but there's actually no English word people can come up with. So our simple outcome measure is how long will it be before people actually give up? Now, time and time again, again, just for the student population, the optimists will go on about twice as long as the pessimists before they give up and say, is it possible? There's no word there. So it's a very simple little demonstration of this fundamental difference in persistence, if you like, which has nothing really to do with positive or negative thinking. It's something quite deep in the brain, and there are brain structures in, involved in that. And I think that almost certainly um, is why there's a lot of evidence that optimists do better in, in the business world, for example. They tend to be much more successful. It's not so much because they're thinking very happy thoughts all the time, it's because actually they are much more persistent and they're much better at dealing with setbacks and there's a lot of these you know, much deeper kind of issues and there's lots of other evidence showing that actually a lot of the benefits of optimism don't come from the positive thinking so much, they come from these other components of optimism. So I think it's, it's just important to remember that. So the question is then, is optimism actually good for us? I mean, we hear lots of you know, crazy things that, you know, optimism would do all sorts of wonders for us. But actually, the evidence is pretty strong. And as I said, it's important to remember it's not just the positive thinking, it's the other components of optimism that are often important. Now, I'll just tell you about one pretty neat study that was published um, a couple of years ago now. The researchers found um, a set of diaries from young Catholic women who had joined a, a Catholic convent in the States in the 1920s. So uh, most of the, the women who are still alive now were now in their 80s, late 80s or 90s. But they found these diaries that all the women had kept when they were in their 20s, so you know, late teens or 20s. And what they did was they just divided them into optimistic type of nuns, if you like, and pessimistic nuns based on their diary entries, the type of things they wrote. And what they found was when they looked at what had happened to those people over all of those years, they found huge differences in health. The optimists were much healthier all the way through. But even more dramatically, there was a huge difference in longevity. The optimists actually on average, lived long, lived 10 years longer than the pessimists. So there's a huge difference. And as I said, there's lots of evidence. I haven't got the time to really go into all of this evidence. But there is you know, a huge amount of evidence that optimism is something that's actually quite good for us. Um, however, I think the caution is it's not just to do with happy thoughts. And I think particularly in America, not so much here, but in the, in the US, there's a lot of movement saying we should be happy all the time. We should think positive thoughts all the time. That's total nonsense. Of course we should. And lots of things do go wrong. We should be a bit pessimistic at times. Yeah, we do need a balance between those aspects. But the, the other components of optimism, there is good evidence that actually that does benefit in a lot of ways over, over the years. Now, just very quickly go through, well, what are the triggers? Where does optimism come from? It does seem like our outlook on life is kind of set in stone, if you like. Sorry, have you jammed up there? Or? Sorry, oh, sorry, I thought you asked a question. Sorry. Um, it, it often seems like um, these kind of mindsets are set in stone a little bit. Um, and we know that genes definitely are important and just as th things that happen to us are important. But the key thing is really that it's, it's how these things interact together that really makes a difference. And again, I'll just tell you about a nice study um, that really kind of demonstrates this. Um, so basically, all of us have a unique set of genes, but we vary in, in a very subtle way. So some genes you have either a short version or a long version. And we all have this. We inherit a short or a long version from each of our parents. So you can either have two short, two long, or, or one of each.
So there was a very, um, <clears throat> so I'll just skip over that. A very um, famous study um, was published really looking at whether a shorter version of this particular gene called the serotonin transporter gene, and there was good biological reasons to think this gene would be important for depression. So people with a shorter version of the gene were expected to have a higher risk of depression. So a group of people in London actually ran this study um, over a 26-year period. So they started the study when all of their participants were only three. They were just toddlers. And they followed them until they were all 26 years of age. Okay? So every single year, they brought everybody into the lab, did lots of tests, got lots of details about what was going on in people's lives. You know, had good things happened, had bad things happened during that year. Um, and, of course, they had the information about their genetics. So at the end of the um, 23 years, when everybody was now 26, they looked at their data to see would the people with the short version of the gene have a higher risk of depression. Now you can imagine how they must have felt when they looked at the data, there was absolutely no difference. Those with the long version of the gene had exactly the same risk as those with the short version of the gene. Now sometimes when I do studies that last you know, six months, you can be a bit disappointed, but I can imagine after 26 years, you'd be pretty disappointed. However, the story changed completely when they then took into account what had been going on in people's lives, the kind of life events. What they found was that if you had had four or more really pretty nasty things happen to you and you had the short version of the gene, then your risk of depression was really high. Whereas if you'd had four or more really nasty things happen to you and you had the longer version of the gene, your risk of depression didn't increase. So it was genuinely the interaction between particular combinations of life events and genes that made the difference. So the genes on their own didn't make much difference. The life events on their own also didn't make much difference, which is a side people often forget about. It was really how those two inter interacted together that really made a difference. So we know genes are important, we know life events are important, but it really is how they interact together that's important. And I had another study um, just to illustrate that, but I'll just skip over that because I think uh, I'm slightly running out of time. So. So given that we know that, then we've just looked at what these differences are between optimists and pessimists. Um, so can we change? We know that optimism is generally good for us. As I said, we need a healthy dose of pessimism some of the time, so I don't think we should all try to be rip-roaring optimists all the time. But nevertheless, you know, if people are, especially if people are pretty pessimistic, it probably is good for them on balance if they shift to a more positive way of thinking. And the good news is that we now know that the human brain is actually extremely malleable. It's far more flexible than we ever really thought. And going back to that analogy of the water going through the sand, you know, it's, it's, it's not set in stone. It's set much more in, in a much more, you know, malleable type of material. And so we know we do have a really good capacity to change. I'll just very briefly tell you some of the first evidence for this was some very nice research done in London with black cab drivers. Now, you may know black cab drivers do this thing called the knowledge, which is the test they have to do to... Um, to uh, get a license to drive a black cab in London. Now, the knowledge is extremely difficult. As, as far as I remember, there's about 28,000 streets in London, and they have to be able to get you from A to B in the shortest possible way. So you can imagine the demands of spatial memory. You know, people have to have extremely good memories. So this group in UCL, what they found was that the area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is the area we know underlies that spatial memory, was actually much bigger in, in London cab drivers, black cab drivers, than others. Now, so the assumption was that you may be learning all of this actually you know, increase the size of your hippocampus. Now, a big flaw in that study, of course, is that it may well have been if you happen to have a big hippocampus, you have a very good memory, but then, of course, you're more likely to pass that test. So the next study they did was they took in all of these young guys, and I think they were all men, actually, who were 
who were beginning to learn this knowledge, and it, it takes them a couple of years before they can really take the test. And sure enough, what they found was they measured the brain size of this particular area in the brain about four or five times over the course of the learning. And sure enough, they found that as people were learning, uh, their spatial memory was improving, and sure enough, their hippocampus was actually increasing. So there was a real, from that learning, there was a real change in the physical structure of the part of the brain that dealt with um, memory. So we know there's very good evidence the brain is much more flexible than we might imagine. So that's exactly, sorry. Yes, it does. It does. It's a really good question. So the question was, does it shrink if you know you stop learning? And absolutely right. The same, a lot of similar work has been done with musicians, for example. So if you really do a lot of practice on guitar, the areas of your brain that deals with your finger work, for example, will, will get very, very big. But if you stop practicing, it will also shrink again. So absolutely. So it's very, very flexible. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I've been looking at in terms of the brain circuits underlying optimism and pessimism. So it's exactly the same kind of principle. And uh, basically what we're finding is very much the same kind of thing. We're finding that if people really do try to train their brain, if you like, um, it really does make a difference to these brain circuits. So I'll just very quickly show you, we have a very simple computerized task, which we can train people to orient towards either positive or negative type of information, very similar to the task we used earlier. And I don't know if you can, sorry, this, uh, if you just have a look again, it's the same kind of thing. We flash two images up. In this case, you might notice that the target is always being where the negative image has been and the person presses the button. So in other words, that would be a condition we're trying to shift people towards a more negative way, and we do that to try and learn about how anxiety develops. And then in the other condition, we shift, try and shift people towards a more positive direction. So exactly the same kind of task. Um, I don't know whether you saw the Horizon program last week, but my work was was um, was um, featured on that, and we showed exactly this kind of task. And if you do want to have a go yourself, it is actually on our website now. So it's just uh, rennybrain.sunnybrain.com. If you go to BBC Horizon, you can actually try this little test for yourself. It's quite a fun little test that you can do if, you, if you'd like to have a go with that. So basically what we find is that using those kind of brain training, we can actually shift those biases in a more positive direction. There's also a lot of really good um, scientific evidence now showing that meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation, can really strengthen those areas of the prefrontal cortex, which we mentioned earlier, which really help you to um, control stress. So it really genuinely helps to um, control stress reactivity. So there is lots of evidence, and as I said, we don't have time to go into all of the different bits of evidence, that you know, we really can change our brains. It's a little bit like if you want to get physically fit, you know, you, you might want to go swimming or running or do whatever. If you do it once a blue moon, it's not going to have much impact. But if you do it every week, if you go out, say, a couple of times a week, the chances are you will get much better. Exactly the same with brain training. If you stick with it and do it on a regular basis, there is evidence you can start really to shift. So um, just to finish then, the most important thing is um, to look at the bright side. Just remember we're shifting our biases. It's just finishing. <laughs> so the idea is we all have to kind of learn to shift towards either the positive or the negative and in a very shameless plug of my book you can buy it in all the shops now <laughs> Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain thanks very much <laughs>
that was Elaine's incredible um, 30-minute tour of her um, work, a bit of her work, and also the subject of her book, Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. One of the things that Elaine touched on was this idea that um, positive actions are so much more important than positive thinking, and she goes into a lot more detail than that in her book. I really, really recommend it. Um, we would like to ask some questions, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. Um, has anyone got any questions for Professor Elaine Fox? Hi. <laughs> really, really good question. Did and everyone hear that? Why <coughs> hasn't pessimists died out? And interestingly, the answer is is almost. Um, it probably would be the opposite. If 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 you know, because actually, I think the answer really is that we need both because we do need a bit of pessimism. But if you remember when I said like the the very basis of that rainy brain, so the pessimistic mindset, is the fear system. Now, the fear system is absolutely essential for our survival. That's why it evolved. If we didn't have a fundamental fear system, we almost certainly would die out. So actually, pessimism comes from from a very good place, if you like. It's a very good thing to be tuned in to danger cues. But the problem is if it kind of ratchets out of control. And a lot of the work that I've done is with, say, people with anxiety disorders. And that's really where that amygdala, that fear system gets completely out of control. So people are seeing danger everywhere. Um, so I think you know, a healthy, you need to get the balance right, really. You need to kind of be pessimistic enough. Because as we're saying, if, if we think about it, there's lots of times, you know, you might lose your job next year. There might be things. So you need to kind of think about things. Or do I buy this thing now or not? You know, so there's a lot of big decisions people make where, you know, you have to be realistic and and a little bit pessimistic. So I think really the reason we survive is because we have, actually the reason we really survive, I think, is because we're generally reasonably optimistic, but also have a healthy dose of pessimism. So it's getting that balance between the two. Sorry? Um, well, that's, <laughs> that's true, but it did make even a big difference there. It's, yeah, so, <laughs> I say. Okay, well, that's... Um, has anyone seen any difference between children and adults in terms of optimism and positive biases? Yes, well, in fact, a lot of the research we're starting to do now is, is on children, and um, we're getting very interested in how these things develop. And they do actually start pretty early in life. You know, you do, and as I said, you know, even as an infant, we do have these natural tendencies to tune into you know, danger cues and, and pleasure cues. And even at infants, there's individual differences there. So we all know, like, some, some babies will be much more kind of, uh, you know, some babies will run behind their mother's leg and they won't really come out. Others will be much more curious and, you know, not, not so afraid of strangers. And um, so these differences start very, very early. And it's though, it's that kind of, it's almost like we're learning these biases right from that very young age. So even though the bias might be a few milliseconds, if you think about that maybe 30, 40 times a day, hundreds of times a week, hundreds of times a year, by the time, you know, you're 15, those kind of brain circles are going to be pretty entrenched, and, and that's kind of the way it happens, really. So, so. We're just going to start. Um, we're going to start setting up, but we'll keep going on for questions. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I think that you were first. Okay. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, a really, really good question. A really specific question for the podcast. Okay. Um, would you advocate more risk-taking in order to increase optimism, particularly uh, within children? Again, an excellent question. And, and yes, I kind of would. I mean, I think, again, it depends where people are on the, spe the spectrum. If somebody's already you know, pretty high, you probably wouldn't. But I think you're absolutely right. I think the only way we learn really is through our failures. Um, and the only way kids learn about danger is by falling over or cutting themselves. And, and if we kind of keep them so safe that they don't do that, they'll never learn how to really protect themselves. And, and there is a lot of work now exactly looking at that, that the reason why you know, maybe a lot of people aren't as resilient as they could be is because they've almost been protected too much. They haven't kind of climbed up a tree and fallen down and realized that's not a good idea. You know? So I think we do, we need to learn those things. But 
again, it's obviously one of these things, it's a balance. You know, if you already have someone who's extremely risky, well then, you know, so it really, you need to look where people are and then, but I think in general, I think a, a lot of people are mollycoddled a little bit too much and, you know, there is danger in the world and, you know, most of the time it's not disastrous. Um, but, you know, you need to have a few accidents here and there to learn. And, uh, you know, and again, I think just going back to some of the benefits of optimism, I think a lot of the evidence is that it's, you know, a lot of the reason why I say in business, um, a lot of optimists seem to do better than pessimists. It's often because they can deal better with failure. They can, you know, there's lots of great quotes you, you can get from business people saying, you know, I, I actually learned all about it through failing. It's, that's only, and, and, and keep it going, not giving up first time. So, yeah. So I think you're next. Hi. Okay, what is the impact of childhood trauma on levels of um, positivism and, and pessimism? Again, it, it has a very big impact. I mean, obviously, one of the, um, I did a study a couple of years ago with identical twins, which is a really nice example, of course, because you've got people who have exactly the same genetics. And we were looking for identical twins where one had an anxiety disorder and one didn't. So obviously, it can't be through the genes necessarily and what we found is sure enough that does make a big difference if um, so for example one pair of twins I studied one had been attacked quite viciously by a dog when she was about four whereas the other hadn't and she had developed a huge phobia for all animals that are really generalized to all animals but I also think the um, study I just mentioned there briefly about where it really is a combination between certain genes and certain life events that really does make a difference. And there's a lot of, in fact, I've just been at a conference last week in London looking at a lot of new kind of treatment strategies for particularly anxiety disorders. And some of the really interesting things now is that um, you can actually do things immediately after a trauma that can actually make a really big difference. So I think, you know, it's, it's not inevitable. If something really bad happens, it's not inevitable that people develop, say, serious disorders. But um, it certainly does have an impact. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Does meditation have an effect on... No, we're not going to miss that question. I'll <laughs> Shall I summarize it? So, so basically, it has to be on that one, does it? Okay. So basically the question is, um, you know, is, is, uh, if we're all a bit, if, if we all did a bit more meditation and develop a bit more compassion, would that be better for world peace? And, and yeah, which is the next question. And I think the answer is almost certainly yes, actually. And, uh, funnily enough, I, I did, I actually went to, um, Nepal last year where there's a lot of Buddhists. And, uh, you may know that in Bhutan, instead of measuring the, um, domestic, uh, the national domestic product, you know, the economic indicator, they have a happiness index. And that's actually what I said is important. That's what's important. And there's no doubt there's a lot of good evidence that, um, Meditation does increase compassion and increase those areas of the brain. And there's no doubt that it, that does increase cooperation and people, you know, can be a lot nicer to each other. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of deep complex issues be, behind all of that, but I think there definitely is evidence and, and countries where you have a lot of people who do a lot more meditation, like say a lot of Buddhist countries, do tend to be, um, people tend to be far happier, but interestingly by the same token, and this might fit into 
Kevin Duffin's talk, who's next, um, they don't tend to be as economically successful, which is kind of quite interesting. So maybe you need to be a bit more psychopathic sometimes to actually, <laughs> be, you know, be successful. But if we want to be happier, it's probably. <laughs> I think we can do two, two more questions. Two more. Okay. Maybe three if we really stretch out. Okay. Hi, because there's three there. What are the implications? What are the implications for professionals looking after children who might have an attachment, an attachment, um, attachment problems? Attachment. I think again a lot. I mean, I think certainly um, there's a lot of very deep issues kind of there. I mean, obviously attachment is a hugely important thing in in, in childhood. Um, but I think the main thing is really. Um, I, I think one of the main things in childhood is, is is people need to feel kind of safe. And I think you know, going back to the earlier question, I think you know with say traumatic life events. I think if people lose that sense of safety, that can be very, very damaging. Um, so I think there is a lot of kind of input that people can do to try and help there. Um, I mean, certainly in terms of the meditation, there's been a lot of work with meditation now showing that, um, particularly with say um, children who are very kind of hyperactive and also with violence, you know, a lot of meditation can actually really you know, help quite a bit. So I think the whole attachment issue is a little bit kind of more complicated, but yeah, it's a, so I think there are two more questions, you and then you. So. Is there any evidence of a gender bias in optimistic and pessimistic behavior? That's a really interesting question. Um, generally, when we do kind of standardized questionnaires of optimism, um, there doesn't seem to be too much difference. And the interesting thing is that actually most people are mildly optimistic, which is kind of what we found here, actually. So you find about 70% people are pretty optimistic. However, there is a big difference in clinical disorders of anxiety and depression, where women are much more likely to develop anxiety and depression disorders. But in the more, if you like, within the normal kind of spectrum, if you like, of pessimism and optimism, there doesn't actually seem to be too much difference. And in fact, a lot of people ask me the question, is it, is it good for, say, a couple to be one optimistic and one pessimistic is that the best for children and and maybe that maybe it is you get a good balance there so okay this is one final question sorry i was just thinking about life events and childhood trauma so even if they did have the optimistic trait how, because that can put such a different spin on it. How can you overcome that then to well, get back to being sunny? Yeah, I think the absolute core thing um, to change is, is is cognitive biases. It's really shifting your mind in in a slightly different direction. And there are kind of lots of things you can do to do that. And and literally, I mean, it's, it seems a bit overly simplistic in a way, but literally just trying to notice the more positive things. So we've done some studies, for example, where we've given people little diaries and just said, look, just write down, not, not the really big things, we're all going to remember the really big things, but just the little things, like, you know, it might be raining, you just missed your bus, you were late to work, like all these kind of minor hassles, but also good things. You might have bumped into a friend you haven't seen for a long time and a nice coffee, which was kind of unexpected. And if you get people to write all of these things down and then go back, say, four or five days later and just have a look at their diaries, people who are deeply pessimistic are always amazed to see how many good things that actually did happen. Because they always think, and, and that's actually because it's a genuine bias in memory. People who are very um, pessimistic genuinely are much more likely to remember the negative than the positive. 
with. So even doing something as simple as that, it does two things. First of all, it helps to overcome that bias and you kind of realize actually, even though I don't really remember it, actually all those things did happen. But also, once you start doing something like that, you just start noticing when a good thing happens, you think, oh yeah, I must remember to just jot that down. So actually just literally just trying try, try to shift those mindsets into this more positive direction can actually be quite powerful. And as I said, you can go onto the website and have a go at this kind of little computer task, which is, um, there's again, a lot of evidence. It's called a cognitive bias modification task, and that can shift people um, in a slightly more optimistic way. Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain is published by Heinemann Publishing, and you can find out more about Salon London at www.salon-london.com.